Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the Motherkind podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for pressing play. I am so happy you are here. Kathy Rensenbrink is the author of the Sunday Times bestseller, The Last Act of Love. She also has a new book out called Write It All Down, How to Put Your Life on the Page. I'll be honest with you, I didn't know what to expect from this conversation. I didn't know Kathy before this conversation. Her team pitched her to come on the podcast and I thought that we might have a brilliant conversation about writing and journaling and its power to help us have perspective and insight. And we did all that. But my gosh, this conversation blew me away because it is also so much more than that. I loved it and I've definitely found a new friend in Kathy. Kathy is so poignant in the way that she reflects back on her journey as a mother. And whilst, yes, this episode is about writing and journaling and its profound power to support us as we wind through this path of motherhood, I think this episode is mostly about self-compassion. I hope you listen to it and I hope that it helps you remember to connect to that kind of voice within you, the part of you that knows you're okay it's okay. And it's all going to be okay. Before we get on to this week's episode, I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week. Portable breast pumps are just brilliant, aren't they? They're convenient, fuss-free and allow us to get on with whatever we need to do hands-free. And the Frau Power Pump is just brilliant. The pump tucks into your bra so you can pump and go with no wires. It has 12 comfort levels. How good is that? It has capacity for 180 ml milk. And I think this bit is really important. The Frau Power Pump is really competitive and an accessible price point. It's actually over £150 cheaper than many of the other hand-free pumps out there. Frau Power also offer a totally free midwife live chat every Friday on their website. So anyone can head there if you need some advice from a professional midwife, whether you're pregnant, you have a newborn, or you just need some help with your baby. Listeners of the podcast can get 10% off the Frau Power breast pump at www.fraupow, that's F-R-A-U-P-O-W dot com with the code motherkind10 that's fraupow.com motherkind10 for 10% off your portable breast pump and see the website motherkind.co for t's and c's here is this week's episode Kathy, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to chat with you this morning because writing is one of my absolute sanity savers and I do it every day. So I can't wait to delve a bit deeper with you into that process and how it can help someone. So welcome. It's very nice to be with you. So why is writing for mothers 
such a powerful thing to do because a lot of people think I haven't got time or I can't write or let's start there. Yeah, I mean, it is difficult because often you don't have time, do you? I mean, I've sort of always written, but the specific way that it helped me just after I'd had my son, Matt, you know, in those really early days, somebody gave me the advice that, because I just thought he was crying all the time. And I just had this sort of wave of sadness and compassion for my earlier self. So I thought he was crying all the time. And then someone, I can't remember who said, just like write down when he is crying, because it won't be as long as you think it is. So I, you know, always had paper. So I got some notebooks out and So I started just writing down like, you know, when I fed him and when he cried. And then I just started making the notes I was making a bit longer. And I started writing them from his perspective. So I'd write like, mummy looks a bit tired because I'm still crying and she doesn't know why. And something about doing that just really helped me to, I don't know, feel kinder towards myself, feel more kind of almost like in tune with how weird it must be to be a baby. Like you've been inside in the, like it's all been dark and wet and suddenly you're outside and there's all this light and this anxious looking woman. (laughs) It was just really lovely. I did it. And then now I think really sadly, when I went back to work, when he was kind of, I think 10 and a half months old, I largely stopped keeping those kind of diaries because I again, I just didn't have time. And every so often I'd try but I'd run out of time. But I think it's so good because I think it always helps us to do something creative. It does slightly give you a bit of distance sometimes. Doing that sort of thing and just encouraging you to think to yourself to think like, what must it be like being them? I think that can also be quite useful. You know, I use writing as a tool as a couple of ways in my life and therefore in my life as a mother. And the first one is I sort of journal every day and I have to. Now, someone said the other day, that I write to figure out how I think and feel. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'd never heard it put so poignantly and concisely. I was like, that is why I do it, but I'd never put those words to it. I genuinely don't know what I think about something or feel about something until I start writing it out. Do you have a sort of daily practice where you're writing out your internal world and making it external? What does that look like for you? How do you use writing in that way? Yeah, very much. And I completely agree. And I think a lot of people who write, again, whether that's journaling or whether that's writing books in some way, I think a lot of people who write are like that. But I almost think most people kind of like don't know that that's what it is. You know, I used to think that if you were a writer, presumably you sat down and you knew what you were doing. (laughs) And my writing life has got a lot easier since I've kind of basically accepted that most of what writing is for me is it's like, It's a way of sort of slightly capturing and then taming my sense of confusion with myself and the world and like what's going on. I don't understand this. And, oh, this isn't how I thought it was going to be. You know, why didn't anybody tell me it was going to be like this? I wasn't expecting this at all. A lot of that is what I'm doing. And it's as I write it down, I do often make sense of things. But at the very least, I think I sort of unburden myself. I think when you get into the habit of it, and again, it's really interesting, I think that you've said now, So you start doing it. And when you do start doing it, like all new habits, it's clunky, it's difficult, you can't find the time. But then when you get into it, I find the more I do it, the more I kind of get rewarded. So I want to carry on doing it. And then it does feel like it feels like a friend. It feels like an ally. And I think that's the way to that's the way to try and do it. If you think of it as a chore, like another thing on the list that you've got to get done, that's harder. But if you could think of it as actually now I'm going to, you know, make myself a coffee or get a big glass of water or whatever. I'm just going to sit down even for five minutes, if that's all I've got. 
and just kind of commune with my writing self is almost the way I think about it. Just write some stuff down. That how you would suggest someone starts just sort of five minutes free writing? Would you suggest they ask themselves questions or do they need a prompt? How do you get into it? I think the key thing is to start really small. And again, in all my experience of doing it myself and also helping other people to do it, well, normally when it doesn't work for people, it's either because they kind of like they don't really want to, like they might think it's a good idea, but, you know, life is busy and they might do it for a bit. And then they might think, actually, I kind of think I'd probably be better off if I was spending this 10 minutes doing yoga or, you know, if I'm going to find this time, I might do it for something else. And again, that's completely fine. It's not like I'm ever crossed with someone who decides that yoga or meditation is better for them than journaling, you know. So sometimes it's that. Sometimes people give it a go and then think, actually, with limited time on, I think there's other things better for me. But more often than that, really, it's actually being too ambitious when you start off, I think, thinking that you've got to find a lot of time and also being ambitious about what you write, thinking that the writing has got to be good quality or thinking that the insights have got to be kind of quick and profound. Whereas I spend a lot of time and people, I think, often kind of like don't believe me, especially if they have read my books, which, you know, my books are really edited. It's not like I just kind of transcribe my morning scribble and (laughs) press print. But, you know, a lot of my daily writing really is just, you know, what I have for breakfast and what's on my nerves. And then later on, when I look back on it, there's diamonds among it. But at the time of writing, I've really now reconciled with the fact that it, I mean, it really doesn't have to be interesting. Sometimes I am amused by my life and then I will allow myself to sort of slightly amuse myself on the page. But other times I'm not amused by my life. I feel miserable and upset and cross and overwhelmed. And I've learned just to write that down in a non-judgmental way, you know, not writing it all down and thinking, like, oh, I'm such an awful person because I'm not more grateful for what I've got. Instead, just think, you know what, again, the notepad is my best friend, doesn't judge. I don't have to be nice. I don't have to be good. I don't have to be making an effort to try. You know, it's a private space where I can just sort of let off steam. So I think starting small, not expecting great things from yourself and thinking of it as a sort of an ally. And then also thinking of it as a friendship. If you made a new friend and you went for coffee, you wouldn't necessarily be high octane right from the first second, would it? You'd like grow into the friendship a bit. Things a bit like that. So is writing therapy? Well, it depends on, I think, what you think of as writing and what you think of as therapy. So I think this journaling, I think just writing, you know, sort of like honestly as much as you can for yourself. I think it has therapeutic benefit as in I think it potentially does make you feel better so I definitely think it can be part of therapy I mean I also have therapy I'm quite I'm very keen on therapy and find it very useful it's not an instead of kind of thing but I definitely think it really helps certainly when I'm writing a lot it really actually then helps the therapy and it also makes me get the most out of the therapy you know if you think that therapy is like 50 minutes I mean I don't have it every week But the writing will kind of, again, really like slightly add on to the therapy. I really feel I get my value out of the therapy. And then it means that in that time, I don't have to spend loads of the therapy time just kind of like having a moan because I've done all that in my pages. Then I can go to therapy and say, okay, I've really noticed over the past couple of weeks, what's really preoccupying me is this, this and this. And then we can kind of slightly cut to the chase a bit. So in that sense, it can be really good. And of course, lots of people can't access therapy because one of the huge sadnesses of my life is 
I really like to talk about therapy because there is a stigma about it. I do know lots of people that are ashamed to even admit that they might. So I think it's good to say, like, I have therapy to try and get rid of the stigma. But then the really sad thing is then if somebody then says, actually, right, I'm persuaded, I'm in, you know, they go to the doctors, they end up on some like waiting list for the never, never, never land that it's ever going to happen. So that's also really hard. I think then journaling certainly won't do you any harm. And it might be something you can use to bridge until you can then see the therapist. But also lots of people journal and aren't interested in therapy and never go near a therapist. So I think it's sort of, there's loads of applications for it. I don't know any, I mean, I know loads of therapists now. I do tend to sort of attract. (laughs) I think there's a lot of crossover between therapists, writers and teachers Teachers probably almost like of particular subjects as well, I'd say, like English teachers, history teachers, drama teachers. I think there's a lot of crossover. And I do find I often attract those people to me as friends. (laughs) So, but I know loads of therapists now. And again, I don't know any of them that think journaling is a bad idea. Loads of them do it themselves. The studies on on the effectiveness of journaling are just mind-blowing. I love that way that you phrased the pages and non-judgmental friend and space for me because I think so many mothers me included you know you feel that time squeeze don't you and it's like where is the space for me and I found that that practice of just having that paper and that pen or even just the notes section on my phone sometimes when I was like you know super squeeze for time is just a time to untangle all the confusion and the mixed feelings of motherhood and I'm wondering about your intersection of being a writer and a mother did motherhood sort of enhance your life as a writer or did it make it harder because you had you know less time less space I'm really interested in that because you yeah. were your first book when Matty was was he one or two he was quite young yeah, he was, I was sort of writing I've always been writing but I've only kind of like as in like made my living through it since I think my first book was published when he was four So I was writing it when he was a toddler. I mean, I find this a fascinating subject. I think he was a great catalyst for me. You know, because my first book was about the death of my brother. That happened a long time ago. So I was sort of stuck in it. I couldn't kind of get out from under it, but I kept trying to write about it and giving up. And then when I had my son, I sort of realised that from what I was observed of the world, I think the worst thing for children is when there are secrets, when there are things that aren't discussed, you know, when there's sort of like an unwritten family rule, we don't talk about this. And I just realised that now that he existed, I was kind of going to have to almost like think of an answer for him about what had happened to my brother, which had become a subject we were just very tender about in my family. There weren't any photos of him anywhere. We didn't talk about him. And then one day my son said, because my dad very rarely was telling a funny story about my brother and it was all to do with um, it is a funny story. They got this canoe out at Helston Boating Pond and then they sank and my dad was telling it. And it was a really rare thing. Again, we just got really used to avoiding my brother's name, Matthew, because it made us all feel so full of pain. And then my son later that day said to me, he said, was there another boy called Matthew? And I just, and I said, yes, there was. So he was a great catalyst in that sense. Again, if I'd not had him, I'm not sure I would have written that book. But then also, it's also just true, as all your listeners will know, how much time it takes to raise a child. So you can't say, it's not like you then have loads of time. But one of the funny things with writing is I almost sometimes think the more time I've got, the more I just mess about in it or get depressed in it or waste it. 
or let it fill up with self-doubt and despair. So in some ways, it's quite good for me to not have much time. And that sort of worked as well. I had so little time at that point in my life. But we'd go to Kew Gardens and my husband would take Matt off to kind of, there was this bird feeding area. And he'd say, we'll come back for you in two hours. And I really had to make that two hours count. So that was kind of how I wrote it. As he gets older, I do feel much more preoccupied with, oh, you know, like a bit anguished about how to write about him. He's like a great inspiration for me. I'm really interested in boys. In the novel I'm writing at the moment, the boy in it, who was not really supposed to be that important, but the boy character in it has just become like the most important bit and kind of slightly all I'm interested in writing about. And I've got to make my character, she has to kind of like possibly have an affair, but certainly think about it for the novel to work. But she's just not interested in it. She just wants to kind of stare at her son and think about him. (laughs) But Matt is now 12 and I'm finding it a really interesting age and I'm loving the conversations that we have. Again, I already think, I wish I'd written him down more, you know, not to share with other people, but just for myself. I wish at the end of every tiring day, I sort of think this for myself. If I could go back in time, I'd say this to myself, just get a notebook, just write down one funny thing that happens every day. Because I think we think we'll remember it and then we don't. It's sort of like lost in the midst of time. I interviewed someone once, I can't remember who it was, and she said that she wrote letters to her children I thought that's a great idea so to start with I was doing it monthly like writing letters to them like what they're like what's going on with me I was like they can take this to their therapist when they're sort of 25 (laughs) but then the monthly thing dropped off but now it's when there's sort of anything big happened so they've started nursery or we moved home and I write to them and they're in these sort of little books and I can already see how when they're older those are going to be such probably the most precious things that we own together because it's like a a moment in time of how I felt. And I'm quite vulnerable in writing how I felt because I'll only give them to them when they're older and what was going on for them. And yeah, I just think it's such a beautiful way to capture the depth of the experience when it can be so easy to lose that with just the busyness of the day to day. Yeah. I think that's utterly beautiful. I think that's completely beautiful. And when I look back at my diaries, journals, whatever you want to call them. And I just wish I'd written more because I didn't write. I wasn't doing it when Matt was really little. But when I find a little bit where I've just written something down, I just, I just love it. Again, now we've reached the stage where depending on what it is, I'll say to him like, oh, I just really found this really funny bit when you said this, this and this. And quite often he's a bit like, you know, don't be soppy, mum, go away. Then sometimes you can sort of see that, he, you know, it gives me a bit of a shy smile from under his eyelashes. And I can see that he, I can see that he likes it. And he's quite interested in the novel I was writing last time, which has a little boy in who's six and his friends. And I did use, again, by this time, I thought I could ask Matt permission. I said, like, can I use some of your toys? Can I put in some of the things that you've said? And he said that I could and then was quite interested in how that worked. But again, he had really strong feelings about that because there's a couple in it who at one point I was planning for them to split up. And he really didn't like the idea that they were going to split up. And I sort of did let myself be influenced by him and kind of think, well, you know, maybe he has the right, you know, if I've taken some bits of him for this child and if he really strongly doesn't want this child's mum and dad to split up, maybe I'll listen to him. So I did listen to him. So in that sense, he had a big impact on the storyline of that novel. And I found it really interesting that he thought that because 
as he gets older and more and more interested in, and it probably is because the physical graft of it is less. You know, I think when children are tiny, I just, I look back at it and I just still find it kind of like almost like a miracle I managed to do it. It's just like the work of it, isn't it? And the physical toll that it takes on you. And then, of course, you know, I mean, I always loved him, but there's this sort of miraculous time where they start doing things like they do stuff for you. Like I was ill last week and it was amazing because not only could he like fairly much sort of look, I kept thinking this would be so much worse if he was a toddler or even if he was six, you know. But again, he was sort of like expressing concern. Sorry, you feel poorly, mum. I said, sort of like, gosh. <laughs> and just writing all that down, I find it really interesting. And his, I find his opinions very interesting because it is quite, because I do bits of journalism. So I'll pay him. I say to him, if you brainstorm this piece with me, and if I end up using anything, I will give you some of this money. But I did say to him, as long as it doesn't give you an unrealistic idea of work I said I bet quite a lot of your friends would like to have a mum that will give them money for their opinions and he's got a cousin bless him who does a paper round and so has to get up really early go out every morning for you know less than Matt gets as his percentage of my writing about him. (laughs) So what has motherhood taught you about writing and what has writing taught you about motherhood? I think motherhood is one of the big Mysteries. I still don't know if I massively understand it. I also don't know if it needs to be understood anymore. The advice I would give myself if I could look back would just be, and actually this is the same advice I try to give people now about writing, would just be like slow down and try to enjoy the process. Again, I think the modern world conspires to make us think that we're basically kind of like giving birth to an accessory and then we have to make this accessory into a product, you know, that we have to do the right thing so they will turn out the right way and then you know these days I think like a child isn't a cake you know it's not like you can follow a recipe and then you'll get a particular type of kid and I feel really I don't know like emotional about just the massive desire to love my child and actually love all the children love everybody's children just for who they are which I think is so difficult I think that whole idea that making the right mothering decisions is just the right purchase away you know and you get that right from the beginning don't you it's that thing like what pram am I going to get what cot am I going to get it's so difficult not to get sucked into all of that and then I think education is then just really tough you know Matt has some additional needs so that was all really difficult I don't think it's really difficult with him I think it's because the way school is sets it up so it's hard I sort of said to him it kind of doesn't really matter and at least now, like we sort of slightly know some of the stuff. So he's hypermobile and dyslexic. I said, it doesn't really matter. It's not going to ruin your life. You won't be able to be a ballet dancer and you won't make your living by writing grammatically correct and well-spelled sentences with a pencil. But nobody has to these days. So that bit sort of doesn't matter. What matters is that he was made to feel bad about that from the day he went to school when he was four, because of course he's born in August as well. So it's that stuff that now feels to me so much of the angst of school, I actually feel was like quite unnecessary. You know, if we had a different view of children that we could just, would just be more inclusive basically of everything, more inclusive of neurodiversity, more inclusive of the way kids learn the whole system. So I'm right on my soapbox now. I just feel the whole system is education that like just seems to be If you wanted to create something that leads to anxious parents, anxious children and anxious teachers, like it's horrible for loads of the teachers, you'd make the education system we've got. 
So I think that's just sort of really mad. And if I could probably go back in time, I might make different decisions. Whereas as it was, I just kept thinking that slightly like we must be doing something wrong, I guess. So that's sort of what I've learned about motherhood, I think. And it's a bit the same with writing, like slow down and enjoy the process and kind of like almost like not let other people tell you how it should be. So it's a bit the same as like, you know, you don't just follow a recipe and get a child. I don't think you need to follow a recipe to get a particular type of book. You know, it's like there are approaches and there are some principles about children and about writing. But at the end of the day, you just have to kind of, you definitely have to let the child be who the child wants to be. And I think to a certain extent, I say this sometimes to my people I'm mentoring, you've got to let the book be what the book wants to be. Sometimes I think we think we've got more control than we have in both settings, whereas all you can do is kind of be a loving and active presence. (laughs) I sort of grew into that question. I don't think I thought about it that way before. And now I'm thinking, actually, yes, it's quite a similar approach. (laughs) You know, I was thinking as you were speaking was, you know, in my journaling, I'm almost like mining for insights. I think you called it nuggets or something. Yeah. As I'm writing, I'm like noticing, ah, that's a pattern. That's what's bothering me. That's actually really smart, Zoe. Or that's your wiser voice coming through. Or it's it's sort of mining. And I think, you know, as you were describing that with Matt, I was thinking it's exactly the same with parenting. All the time, I'm sort of watching my two little ones, almost mining for who they are and what they love and how I can help them make that bigger in their lives. And I think there's so much similarity between motherhood and writing. And I loved how you said as well that, you know, it's not about a recipe. It's the same with parenting, isn't it? We have to, just like you said, I grew into that question. I think we have to grow into our role as as mother as well. It's about being aware and alert and awake, isn't it, to the beauty of the process and what we might discover, kind of slightly rather than letting ourselves get buried under an avalanche of guilt or am I doing it wrong or should I be better at this? I think with writing and with mothering now feel I just like drained out a lot of time and energy and worrying I wasn't doing it right. You know, worrying I was failing, thinking I wasn't very good at it. Whereas I now see I was just like asking the wrong question. I was focusing on the wrong thing. And when I'm coaching people with writing, I always say, rather than being cross with yourself that you can't do it perfectly straight away, try to think, isn't it amazing that I'm learning something new? And I think if I could have taken that mindset into parenting, it would have served me a lot better. Because when I look back on it, a lot of what was difficult was I was just being really hard on myself about my failures because I I did feel it hard. And I don't think I'm like a natural in that I would never, you know, if I ever needed work, I won't ever be working with children. You know, I'll be working with adults. You know, I've got lots of friends who are really natural, as in they're just really gifted with babies and children. So I'm not that person. And that's fine, isn't it? I do feel I'm slightly growing into Matt. I think I'm probably going to be a better. Well, even that feels a bit judgy, doesn't it? Better. I think my skills are better suited to the later bit of having a child. Whereas a lot of my friends who were actually really good. Again, I've always really fretted against, again, just that sense that I'm not very good at it. To be honest as well, and I feel ashamed to admit it, that it's a bit boring. I always struggled with like playing cars and, you know, all that. I was never very good at play. Which I now just think like I should have just thought this time is actually going to be short. Just get on the floor and play with the dinosaurs. And it doesn't matter. That it doesn't make sense where I was kind of always a bit fretful about that. 
But now that it's all conversation, of course, I, I just utterly love it. I love talking about moral dilemmas with him and stuff. But I think I've now got the mindset right, which isn't kind of like, it is my job to make this person into a functioning human being who does this, this and this according to the rules laid down by society. It's more like, I have been gifted to bring this life into the world and I have to do what I can to keep myself in good form so I can be awake and alert to him. Love that thing you said, how I can see what he's like and help him to grow into being himself, really. When you said I was asking all the wrong questions, can you dive into that a bit deeper? Well, I think I just felt really inadequate. I'll tell you what I was never very good at, and I'm sort of still not. Is that thing of like when you go out with your baby, I just always seem to have forgotten the one thing I needed. Like I'd go out without the rain cover and then it would start to rain. And then I'd just look at him in the, it wasn't quite pram stage, but it was when you're no longer in that kind of like flat pram, but they're up a bit. And I'd just look at him getting wet and think like, how can I have forgotten the rain cover and what am I going to do now? And as it is, I remember that. I sort of like wheeled him home quickly singing, I'm singing in the rain. And we had quite a lot of fun. But at the time, I just felt really bad. Always forgetting tissues. Like I never had a tissue, which can't be true. I must have often had a tissue. Whereas I feel the whole like early childhood for me was looking at his snotty nose, thinking which bit of my clothing am I going to wipe it on and feeling bad about it. So it was that sort of thing, which when I look back on it, I do think like, why did I not just pack a better bag? I'm not sure. But I just always felt really bad about it. And I didn't ever feel, I don't know, in my comfort zone, I guess. I never felt confident. So I always slightly felt I was getting it wrong. And I felt that people were noticing me getting it wrong. Like I felt really, I don't know whether it was true or not, but I felt people would be watching me slightly thinking like, look at that woman who doesn't know what to do with that baby. Do you think that baby's even hers? She looks really cat-handed with it. And again, I'm sure that wasn't true because we had a lot of really lovely, wonderful times. So I think even saying those few things, it was it was judgment of other people, wasn't it? That was sort of scared at. So that double worry, I'm not doing this very well and other people are judging slash laughing at me because I can't do it very well. I mean, the other thing as well was, you know, writing my first book and then having some more therapy really did help me finally get over the death of my brother. Whereas I think I was actually still... You know, for ages, I thought I wouldn't ever have a child because I thought I just couldn't risk like loving something that much and then losing them. So I think there was quite a lot of that going on. So there was this sort of surface level worry of I haven't got any tissues. I'm a terrible person. But then this undercurrent of basically like unprocessed loss and grief that I didn't quite know what to do with. So I think it was that. And when I look back on it, my father-in-law died. My husband's father died when... Matt was, I think, about 18 months old. That was a really difficult time for us in a way that I didn't fully understand at the time. And if I could go back, I would, you know, think about looking after my family quite differently in that way. But again, I also am able to look back, I think, probably with a bit more compassion. So probably more compassion in the moment would have served me, more compassion for me, more compassion for my husband as well, who was kind of grieving but very monosyllabic about it as in he wasn't able to he doesn't talk a lot anyway and then he just kind of didn't say anything for ages and I I didn't really know what to do with that so so I think that was hard and then school because Matt was a sunbeam of a child until school and then he just immediately found school very hard and the more it became about how you hold a pencil 
then the more difficult it got. And we did, I don't think we even like clocked that for ages. And, and like I say, I would think I would make different decisions now. And I wouldn't let my sunbeam of a child have quite a miserable few years because he couldn't hold a pencil and then couldn't write his fives the right way around. And, you know, that sort of stuff, which I think in the grand scheme of things doesn't matter, but somehow we let it matter. What does matter to you? Love, I think. Love and understanding and kindness, giving people the benefit of the doubt and slightly like just trying to muddle through, trying to give my own perfectionism the slip, thinking really that actually it can be about muddling through rather than I must get 10 out of 10 on this test. I think trying to get 10 out of 10 on the test, having that attitude towards parenting or writing, that's just not a pleasant place from which to do it. But kind of like the, you know, I'll do my best. I can stick with hard things. I can have a go. I can always try and find a joke in a hard moment. I can enjoy. And I think thinking of it as an experience as well, one of the things I think about a lot lately is when I think of life like it's a shop or a spa, you know, like (laughs) like I'm supposed to be having a good time, I'm supposed to be able to order what I want. That's not so good. But when I think of life as a learning experience, then that's a better place for me to be. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm really interested to talk to you about resistance and how important it is, because I think it's so applicable, actually, in any area of life. And I know that you're a fan of James Clear. And you said, you know, almost as soon as we have the urge to express ourselves, so someone might sit down to journal, for example, We are besieged with worry and doubt that acts as a block because I've experienced this. You know, I've been daily journaling for what, 12 years? And still, still that voice comes up. Can't believe you're still doing this. You shouldn't need to do this anymore. Uh, Someone's going to read this and you're going to be committed because you're mad. All of that comes up. So how does knowing that or almost expecting that help someone move through those blocks to be able to unlock this pretty incredible tool of writing or journaling well I think knowing that you're not alone in it actually I think a lot of it is to do with knowing that it's not you Zoe uniquely having those I mean I think it's really helpful that you just shared that out loud that's been really helpful to me already I'm sure that'll be really helpful to your listeners just to know like oh it's not just me that when I sit down to write my head fills up with crap you know (laughs) So I think it's really helpful because then you can not overreact to it. So I've not managed to get rid of the resistant voices, but I've managed to stop reacting to them. I don't believe anymore that they're telling an objective truth. I just think like, oh, that's just the creative self-doubt. does seem to be part of creativity. I don't understand why nobody does, but it's just part of it. And it just doesn't matter. And I just sort of think like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Tell me another one. Anyway, I'm just doing it anyway. What I think is really important is the more you can kind of almost automate your habit practice. So what I really found is this is why just relying on inspiration doesn't work for me because a vague desire to do stuff isn't enough. You know, the urge won't get me through the swamps of the self-doubt and the despair. As soon as I have the urge, I then think, is this something I want to do? And then I make a plan and then I stick to the plan. And as time goes on, then you kind of think, well, when's the self-doubt going to happen? What kind of does make the little voices come up? And then you can kind of slightly factor it out, worry about it less. That's how I do it to get over my own things that I cherish and love the urge and desire to do something, but kind of know that it won't be enough 
unless I make a plan. Sometimes I let it stay as an urge and a desire and kind of a daydream. And I know I won't make actual progress, but equally that kind of doesn't matter. It can just stay as a daydream for a bit. And then as it grows, then I think, actually, I really fancy doing that. So I'm going to make a plan of how to do it. And then I'm just going to say I'm going to do that. What really works for me is I don't say like I'm then going to do it forever. I'll say like I'm going to do that every day next week. I really like chunking stuff up into quite like months. I like weeks. I'm excited, you know, when it's a new month, I think, oh, what might I want to do in this month? And then instead of always be having things on like quite a short time frame works for me because I don't get bored. I'm also terrible at getting bored. I really like variety. So those things, it does take a lot of time. I mean, I spend a lot of time coaxing myself into getting things done. (laughs) You know, on the podcast, I've spoken to some incredible writers and high achievers and therapists and, you know, incredible thinkers. And, you know, I'm really learning that that is how to create or produce anything in life that you want to do, whether it's a better relationship with your child, for example, a deeper connection or a book or a new business, it is, I'm coming to really see just that commitment and that consistency. Yeah. And I think it's to be intentional, to be intentional about what you want. There's a writer called Sarah Perry who told me this quote that she got from Dolly Parton, which is find out what you're like and then be it on purpose. (laughs) And I thought it was really interesting. And I think that a lot. So when I look back at earlier stages of my life, I was kind of like flopping around and sometimes like nice stuff happened and often not nice stuff happened. And I was just sort of like flopping around in that without much agency. Whereas now I'm much better. I kind of feel as well, if I can know myself what I want and say what I want, and feel that it's okay for me to want those things, you know, not to be pinging around with like, dare I want that? Am I allowed to want that? And again, if I'm stuck in the, but am I allowed to want that? I take that to the notebook. You know, why do I think I don't deserve this and that? Those are good things to write about. And then when I clear all that up, then I've kind of taken quite a lot of the angst out of the doing of it. I find it endlessly fascinating. And I hope, again, my own understanding of all this stuff is a work in progress. I hope that as I carry on now, I'll understand more as time goes on about writing and about having children. Again, the big, huge mystery and amazingness of creating new life. I still think it's a miracle. I still regularly, I look at my son often and I just think like, how? And it's so amazing, isn't it? Because it feels like such a personal miracle. And yet I know it happens to an awful lot of other people. I mean, everybody who exists was born, weren't they? So it's it's like not everybody has a child, but everyone is a child. So I just sort of look around and think they were all born. They all had a relationship with someone who birthed them. It's astonishing to me. And yet so every day. When you were saying aware and awake, that's really what I've been hearing actually from the golden thread through a lot of what we've talked about is just... I really try and hold that actually because I suffer too with the boredom of it all and the sort of, you know, minus six and two. So it's very much like we eat dinner at this time and we do this at this time. It feels like my life is just a, but when I can stay aware and awake to the miracles of it, to those tiny little moments, to, you know, really forcing myself to mine their gold and look for what is in them and who they are and in myself as a mother and a person, then it becomes less boring and seems more poignant and important and beautiful and I think that's really powerful is just to rise up above that you know like you were saying with the holding the pencil and it's laughable isn't it how unimportant that is 
in the grand scheme of love and life and connection, but how easy it is to get totally lost in that's really important. I just love the perspective. And I think writing is the most powerful way I've found to get that perspective. Yeah, I think so. And like, it doesn't matter whether you're doing it for anyone else or not. I think like quite a fun thing to do would just be to, whether you want to or not, just imagine that you're writing a novel about someone who has a child the age of your child and who really needs to know exactly what the child's doing at that point. Because the funny thing for me, you know, for moral ethical reasons, I didn't want to write about Matt when he was the age that the child in my novel was. So I sort of let him get a bit older. So I felt he was slightly like out of danger of me muddying the waters by putting him in a book. I mean, I know it sounds a bit crazy, but what it meant was when I was writing my novel, I really needed to know granular details of what six-year-olds are like. Five to six, the novel starts with the child's fifth birthday and then ends with him coming up on his sixth birthday. I thought then, like, if only I'd written down every single thing in that year, this would now be so brilliant. And then what I thought afterwards is whether or not I ever write about another child, I'm going to imagine that I am, because then it's going to give me that being aware and awake enough So I write down stuff about Matt, which also slightly has the knock-on effect that I am treating him like he's really interesting rather than like, you know, not Pokemon again, which again, just kind of slightly shifts the energy around it, I think. So yes, I don't know whether I will ever write about Charles again, but just slightly like making it up that I might means that I've then got a reason for writing him down. And then I kind of do find it all more interesting and stimulating and he sort of responds I think because we all like people being interested in us don't we I mean if I blossom under the positive attention of other people and I think kids often do as well so it's not like it's a secret thing he knows I do it I say to him like I'll be writing that down later that's funny and then he'll come home with a joke or whatever and he'll say like I thought you could write that down in your like book of 12 year olds so it's just all very nice I think it's the most powerful thing in the world, really, to feel that someone is that interested in who we are. I think it's hugely esteeming just to be seen. You know, we, everyone has three core needs, isn't it? Which is to be heard and validated. So I think I think yeah. it's, just, yeah, it's beautiful. And, you know, when you were talking about that practice of like pretend that you're writing about a child your age to get really interested in them, that it triggered something else in my mind, which is sometimes what I invite clients to do, which is to give themselves advice as they journal. And Mm -hmm. when I do that, it's just remarkable. I think whose voice is this with Mm -hmm. this kind, compassionate, wise voice comes through. It's definitely not mine. It feels sort of otherworldly almost. And that's available. I think maybe it takes a while to access that regularly, but I think if you keep writing, you get to that voice and that can be so helpful and powerful when we're stuck in the throes of the early years and the chaos of it. Yeah, it's just something about anything you can do, isn't it, to get a layer of almost like detachment. And I think that's writing. I think accidentally, one of the reasons why writing can be good for you is that it can just accidentally be a mindfulness practice because you're noticing And it's that thing of like, I am not my thoughts. You're slightly externalizing yourself. Because it's funny love, isn't it? You'd think like, surely it's just enough that I love him. I mean, in my experience, no. Sometimes almost like a bit, and I don't know whether it's too much love, but certainly because I'm, you know, in whatever way, just a bit screwed up by the death of my brother. I found it really difficult when Matt went to secondary school wearing a secondary school uniform. And again, just 
because my brother was 16 when he was knocked over. And one of the, we didn't take a lot of photographs as a family. One of the main photographs we've got is a school photograph of him. And so I was just suddenly catapulted into this whole new thing of fear and risk, but really realised, I mean, I just wasn't doing him any good. I thought this is not doing him any good. Me being kind of like scared every time he leaves the house that he's about to get run over. So I've got a bit of therapy to help me with that. But I also just tried to, externalize a bit can I step out of the situation if I was observing this situation what would I see and I did write about it again I put us in the third person so again I just put myself out of the situation as the writer as the observer looking at this woman with this boy and writing about them and again that just really helped me to kind of just get a I don't know take a breath slow down I mean, ask for help probably as well. Realise I just need a little bit of help because now I see what was happening. I think at the time I didn't understand why I was finding it so hard and then kind of slightly realised that what it was. It was kind of triggering all these old memories. So I think anything where you can get out of yourself and look at it from a tiny little bit of distance, both for difficult things, but then also just for the joy of it. When I look at people now out in the world, I've been going swimming Sometimes I swim in, well, mostly I swim in the sea, but then I sometimes swim in this pool. And sometimes I'm there at the same time as the mother and child hour, parent and child. And I really like watching parents with their littlies now that, of course, Matt's a bit bigger. And I think how tiring that stage was. But I also think how lovely, like the physical closeness of it, which is slightly a thing of the past now. I'm always like saying to Matt, you know, like, well, could I just have a short cuddle and it'll just sort of give me a pat and then say like, go away now, mum. It's quite funny as well. But it's really interesting to think that I often think if I could time travel, I would time travel back to a stage when we were really physically close, you know, probably when I didn't always want to pick him up because I was a bit tired and my back was hurting. And I think, well, if knowing what I know now in that moment, I'd probably be more able to say, you know, there'll come a time in the future when you will miss this. And I did think of that a while ago, while I was in like a couple of years ago when he was ill and he was awake all night. And I was sort of in bed with him, you know, one of those nights where there's a little bit of dozing and then they wake up again, you know, that kind of thing. And I did that night as I was awake, I kept thinking, this might be the last time that I sort of actually like lie in his bed with him when he's poorly. So I'm going to remember this really properly. And it did somehow transform it into something really beautiful and profound from just like, I'm going to be knackered tomorrow because I've had no sleep. You know? <laughs> and both things can be true that I could be the sort of the exhausted, upset mother dealing with the sick child, but also somehow be able to get out of my body and look at it as look at that mother and that child. I love that phrase, you know, both things can be true. I think about that a lot because they are both true. And I think being able to hold both of those is such a skill of compassion and perspective. I'm having that slight thing I have where I think like, gosh, I've told you all sorts of things, completely forgetting that we're actually recording a podcast because I've been so interested in the subject and it's just been such a pleasure. This is the other thing I care about, you know, meaningful conversation and honestly sharing with other human beings. That's like where I'm at at the moment. I think I have left behind the woman who was scared that people would think, look at her, she hasn't brought out any tissues. And I actually think if I could travel back in time in that situation, I think I'd just go up to one of the other parents and say, I'm really sorry, I've forgotten tissues. Could I have one of your tissues? They'd probably give me one. 
nobody was probably judging me as hard as I felt I was being judged. But where I've arrived to now is I don't want to be thinking that everybody's thinking, look at her with no tissues. I like to think that other human beings are forgiving and compassionate and that that's how I want to be too. You know, the tissues can be a metaphor for so much in life, can't it? That what we think, you know, are these big failings and we do these little things and then we label ourselves, you know, not good enough or, you know, it's just totally inaccurate to what really matters, which is clearly, you know, the beautiful connection and love that you have between you. Yeah, I think those tissues, everyone listening can take that away as a metaphor. You know, it doesn't matter. Ask for help, use your sleeve, just muddle through, but remember the big things. Love, connection, being aware, being awake. I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Well, the practical thing I always offer to mothers that I know is I say, would you like me to come round and take the baby out for a little walk so that you can have a shower? Because I think to have your baby looked after by someone else that you trust, (laughs) I think that's the biggest gift. So that's probably what I would give if it's possible. And the piece of piece of advice I wish I'd had earlier, which was given to me by a psychologist I interviewed, she's called Linda Blair, and she'd written a book about siblings. She said a very good general thing to think of is pay attention to the flowers and the weeds will sort themselves out. I really try to do that in life and with people. Again, I think modern life sends us down and that's why the education stuff is so horrible. You go down this route where you're endlessly focusing on what's wrong with someone and what they can't do. Whereas life gets nicer for everyone if you focus on the flowers. That's beautiful. What a beautiful way to end. Thank you, Cathy. Such a pleasure. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists And we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon.